Well, I'm excited to have all of you here. My name is Luke. I'm the associate campus director here at Alpine Logan. If I haven't met you yet, I would love to meet you, so come introduce yourself after the service. Uh, I would love to meet you. Um, and I'm really excited to have you here because we are finally out of the book of Mark for the first time in a whole year. We announced that sermon series last Christmas Eve. That's <laughs> how long we've been doing the book of Mark. But we're not even done with it. We're actually going to go back to it in February. We're just taking a little break right now as we go through a sermon series on the Advent season. And on that note, it is my privilege to say to you for the first time this year, Merry Christmas. It is the most wonderful time of the year. So much so that people who don't even know why that's true have written songs about it being the most wonderful time of the year. And the Advent season is wonderful, but it's not because of a lot of the reasons people think it is. It's not wonderful because of the presence and the good food and the time with family and friends. But many of those things are wonderful. The, the Advent season is the most wonderful time of the year because of something much, much more important than any of that. To really understand that, we need to remember why it's even celebrated in the first place. We don't celebrate this time because of the gifts or because of the time with family. Those things are simply a consequence of the celebration, not cause for celebration itself. The reason we started celebrating Christmas so long ago is right there in the name. It's Christ. This is the time of year that Christians decided hundreds of years ago to celebrate the coming of a long-promised Savior who changed the course of human history in the most dramatic and merciful possible way. A Savior that had been promised thousands of years before finally showed up in humble form on a regular night in a regular town called Bethlehem to bring hope, peace, joy, and love that was beyond anything this broken world had ever seen before. It was a long-awaited miracle. And that's what the Advent season is about. The word Advent is rooted in the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival. Because as I said, the arrival of this Messiah was long expected. People had to wait a long time. And the Advent is a symbol of the anticipation and the expectation of this arrival of our Messiah in Jesus Christ. And we get this symbol every single year as, as, as we wait all year long to get to the day where we finally celebrate Christ's birth. And there's nothing quite like waking up on Christmas morning after we've gone through the whole year waiting and expecting it, right? And as Christians, this time ought to be even more exciting and more meaningful than for the secular world. Because not only is it a time of this expectance, but it's a time of spiritual reflection and readiness for this arrival that is coming. And we get to reflect on the hope of this arrival. And the traditional ceremony of Advent was, was crafted to promote this spiritual reflection. During the season, traditionally, four candles are lit, each representing a divine gift that Jesus, who is God incarnate, brought down with him when he descended to earth. They are hope, peace, joy, and love. Each week leading up to Christmas this year, we're going to dissect these gifts a little bit. We're going to talk about why we can believe in them, why we can trust that they were promised to us, and how we can lavish in them right now, because Christ Jesus has brought them for us. And the first candle is meant to symbolize hope. So this is what we get to talk about today. 
Hope is a very special thing in a world that looks increasingly hopeless. The Christmas season is meant to be full of hope. Again, looking at the ways that people celebrate this season in Western culture, we look at gifts. We hope all year long that the right gift comes our way. We hope that we get a good time with our family and friends. We hope that we get a break from the busyness of our regular lives, even if it's just for a few days. Or maybe we just hope that when the family time comes, things go right this year. There's not some big family drama or conflict that comes up. Or maybe we just hope that things will finally get better in our relationships, in our marriages, with our kids, with our parents. Or we hope that finally, this year, maybe we'll make enough money so we're not just scraping by. Or we hope that our loved ones will finally understand who Jesus is after being told for so long. But hoping and hoping and hoping like this can get exhausting. And what happens if that thing that you're hoping for never comes? See, no matter how hard you do it, hope can't bring that thing into fruition. And sometimes that brings us sadness instead of encouragement. Proverbs 13.12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. And of course, if you're hoping for something and it's deferred, it's elongated, it's postponed, of course, your heart is going to be sick. But once that dream is finally fulfilled, of course it feels like a tree of life. This is exactly how the ancient Israelites would have been feeling 2,000 years ago before Jesus was born. They had been waiting and waiting and hoping and hoping for a prophesied Messiah, a prophesied Savior, for what seemed like eternity. They'd gone through the gauntlet with oppressor after oppressor, expecting a conquering king to show up and save them because they'd heard prophecies about it for hundreds of years. Their hope was deferred. Their hearts would have been sick. But here's the good news. Eventually, their longing was fulfilled. The prophecies came true. We have reason to hope today because Jesus is alive. We can now put our hope into a loving, merciful, undefeatable Savior because of what Jesus did as our Messiah, no matter how hopeless the world may look today. And now we're going to work through three of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament that pointed toward Jesus' arrival in the New Testament and brought about this hope that I'm talking about today. Starting at the very beginning, we're going to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is the first book of the Bible, just chapter 3 of it. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This scripture is called the Proto-Evangelium. It has an interesting name because it's a really interesting scripture. It is considered to be the first mention of the gospel in the scripture all the way at the beginning. This is chapter 3 of the whole book. And for those of you who maybe haven't heard this gospel or maybe just can't articulate it succinctly yourself right now, I want to lay it out for you. The gospel of the Bible is that Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, came to earth to live a perfect life without sin. Sin is what we call when we choose to go our own way instead of God. It's doing something wrong. Now the price of sin is death. And despite having never sinned and therefore owing nothing for it, Jesus decided to give his divine life 
as a sacrifice to pay for the sins of those of us who couldn't afford it. That's you and me. It's an incredibly hopeful story. It's really good news. That's what gospel means. Now, this verse behind me doesn't contain all of that context that I just gave you, but it's the first hopeful glimpse into what a future offspring would do. They would deal a fatal blow to sin and death. But to understand how this is saying all that, we need to look at the context of this verse. It was originally spoken by God himself to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. This is Satan, who had convinced Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one thing God told her not to do. So this is the moment when sin entered the world, when our paths diverged from what God wanted. It's possibly the most hopeless moment in human history. And in that moment, what God says is to the serpent, he says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and your offspring and her offspring. So after this fall of man, we're promised a conflict. And we see the consequences of this conflict all around us, constantly. This world is broken. I think we can all agree, even those people who are outside of of church doors on a Sunday, even people who wouldn't call themselves Christian, we all see evil happening in this world. We all experience spiritual warfare. We're fighting with our own morality of what is right and what is wrong. And many of us can't decide to do what is right, even though we know what is. We see Satan fighting tooth and nail to take people further from God. We see it on a large scale in our culture, in genocide, and racism, and prejudice. But we also see it on personal levels, in the deaths of loved ones, failed marriages, broken families, depression, and suicide. The offspring of the woman is at war with Satan. But that word offspring, I want to look at that a little bit deeper right now. Humanity as a whole is at war with Satan. There's no doubt about that. And that is what this is referring to, the offspring of Eve. All humans are at war with Satan. But this verse is also referring to a specific person down the line, further in the future after Satan deceived Eve. It's referring to a specific descendant who's going to have conflict with Satan. But this time it sounds like he's going to win. God says that both will deal blows to each other, but while the serpent simply gets his heel the offspring of the woman will strike the head of the serpent. We're talking about a specific person. And we start to see hints on on this specific person as we move further into Genesis. We go to chapter 12, verse 3. It says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Again, God is speaking here. He's speaking to Abram delivering a promise that all families on earth in the future will be blessed through him. And then Paul speaks on this verse, he does a little bit of analysis on it later in the New Testament. He says that this is talking about Abram's offspring. Further in, 37 chapters later, in Genesis 49, we get some more specificity. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. So we see again here that God is promising there will be one person, some offspring of Eve, whom all nations will honor. He will bring light and hope to all nations, to the whole world. And the guy who will win this conflict finally between us and Satan. 
Now, these biblical authors who wrote these prophecies some 2,000 years before Jesus was born couldn't have possibly known who they were writing about. But now, when we look back on these prophecies in Genesis chapter 3, 12, 49, in the book 2 Samuel, a ton of them in the book of Isaiah, there are dozens of these prophecies about a Messiah. We can all see with our hindsight that they are clearly talking about Jesus. We can see that Genesis chapter 3 refers to the death of Jesus on the cross. For just a moment when he died, it seemed like the devil may have won. His deceitful lies, his, his venomous words, they brought a perfect savior to trial for crimes that he didn't commit and sentenced him to death on a cross that he didn't deserve. This was a deadly, poisonous bite on the heel of Jesus. But three days later, that poison had been extracted. Jesus was back, and though his side had been pierced, and his hands and heels had holes from the nails driven through them, he crushed the devil's head beneath him and defeated both sin and death once and for all. We see this imagery repeated in the New Testament in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. It says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's a beautiful image of Jesus, the God of peace, crushing Satan beneath the very heel that was bitten. And we see another image of, of the serpent being cast down in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. I don't have a slide for you guys to follow along with this one, but I want to provide some quick context before I read it to you. Revelation is the final book of the Bible. It's, it's what's called an apocalyptic text, and it's full of prophecy that we can expect to see uh, near the end of the world. We don't know exactly how all of it's going to look. In fact, a lot of it is really confusing. Even this passage I'm about to read you, it sounds wild. But it is pretty explicit as to what it's about. This is chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. Then there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. So here we see another image of the serpent, of Satan, being defeated, being cast down out of heaven by the Savior. And this is the hope that was prophesied to ancient Israelites. And this is the hope that we now see manifested in Jesus Christ. And I just mentioned several other prophecies about this coming Messiah, and they happen all over the Bible some of them much later than when Genesis was written. So we're going to fast forward now to the book of Isaiah. It's one of the prophetic texts found later in the Old Testament. And this prophecy we're about to look at becomes very explicitly about Jesus. It's a verse that any of us who have spent any amount of time in a church around Christmas uh, would have heard before. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says, All right then, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, like I just said, this is a really Christmassy sounding verse because Jesus was famously born to a virgin, Mary. And that's exactly what this verse is talking about. A virgin will conceive a son. But in context, this is not actually the only thing that it was prophesying. Oftentimes, prophetic scripture uh, has, has a future fulfillment, in this case, the birth of Jesus, but also a, an immediate fulfillment that, that would be seen much quicker. 
And we can, we can kind of speculate about that as we look in the context of this verse. It was originally written or spoken by Isaiah about 700 years before the coming of Jesus. And he said it as a reassurance to King Ahaz of Judah. This was during a time when the, the kingdom had been split in two. In the north, there was the kingdom of Israel, and in the south was the kingdom of Judah, where Ahaz was king and Isaiah was prophet. They were facing a threat of invasion from the northern kingdom of Israel who had allied themselves with the nation of Syria. And with this threat on the horizon, Ahaz started to get scared. And then just like many of us, in his fear, he began to turn towards other things for guidance and for help. And he began to place his hope into the things of the world. Namely, this time, he looked to form an alliance with an ungodly nation called Assyria to provide military support in this tumultuous time. But in this verse, Isaiah is counseling the king to trust in God instead. Trust in God instead of trusting in this godless nation, Assyria. And any trust in God right now is going to be enough to weather this storm. So the immediate fulfillment in the context of this prophecy, Isaiah is saying that there would be a child named Emmanuel, and this would be a sign to Ahaz that that threat would be neutralized. This scripture here behind me says a virgin will conceive. But the Hebrew word for virgin here also used, is also used to refer to a young woman of marrying age. So this is a little bit of speculation as to how this might have been fulfilled because we don't have explicit documentation of it. But the Expositor's Bible Commentary offers this interpretation of the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy. The best view seems to be that the mother is a royal contemporary of the prophet, whose child's name would symbolize the presence of God with his people and who would foreshadow the Messiah in whom God would be incarnate. An unmarried young woman within the royal house would shortly marry and conceive. Her son would be called Emmanuel, probably in ignorance of the prophecy. Before the child is old enough to eat the characteristic solid food of the land of promise, the Assyrians would lay waste to the lands of Aram and Israel, which they did in the years 733 or 732 BC, only a year or two after this prophecy was given. So I'll sum all that up for you. In the immediate context of this prophecy, the fulfillment came in the form of a child born to a, a woman in the royal court who was named Emmanuel as a sign that this threat would be neutralized without Ahaz having to ally with the nation of Assyria. And as I just read to you, this happened. Assyria, independent of the kingdom of Judah, went through in the year 733 or 732, only a year or two after this prophecy was made, and wiped out that threat, and Ahaz didn't have to get involved. So, this is, again, a little bit of speculation, but this is a pretty likely immediate fulfillment of this prophecy. However, as we look into the New Testament at the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, we do not have to speculate. We can be very sure that Jesus was this fulfillment. Just like the last one we looked at, we see this prophecy come to fruition in the New Testament. In, in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, we read, This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. 
So that says that, that Joseph didn't want to slander her, but he did want to break off the engagement because this woman he was engaged to be, to be married to was suddenly pregnant with somebody else's baby. So he had his suspicions. But God put them to rest. We read further in, in verse 20. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So God sends an angel to put his suspicions to rest. This angel tells them the truth about their new child. And Matthew leaves us no room to guess or speculate what all this might have meant. We are assured that this is the child Isaiah's prophecy told us about so long before. Reading further into verses 22 and 23. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So we've now examined this prophecy in Isaiah and seen what would have been an immediate fulfillment to King Ahaz that brought him a temporary hope in the middle of a storm in his life. And now we've seen what is the ultimate fulfillment of a child to be born of a virgin with the purpose of bringing God down to dwell with us. And there is nothing more hopeful to me than knowing that God would bring his presence down to a broken world that needed saving so that he could save it. And this is our, our second prophecy that we're looking at today. I want to get into one more of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And it's possibly the most hopeful that we will get to see. It's just a couple chapters later in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 9. Starting in verse 1, we read, Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled. But there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walked in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. So this prophecy isn't actually about Jesus' birth. This is a prophecy about his ministry, about what he would do during his life and where he would eventually go during his time here on earth. And it's a big deal because as you can see here, it says Galilee is of the Gentiles, this place that he will eventually go. That means that it is not from Israel. They are not Israelites. They are not the chosen people of God. But this is showing us that this hope brought by the Messiah isn't just for Judah. It's going to be for all people. And again, we see this come to fruition in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. When Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth, then left there and moved to Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and of Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. That sounds familiar. From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So Jesus began to preach this message of hope. 
It is hopeful. Repent of your sins because the kingdom of heaven is close. The hope and light in this message is being shined in a region of death by Jesus himself. We see this more literally in John chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. The word gave life to everything that was created, and this life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. This word here with a capital W is referring to Jesus himself. He gave life to everything that was created, and this life brought light to everyone. Not just the chosen people of Israel. They were chosen, yes, but not to be the only people who God would send the Messiah to save, rather to be the people through which God would bring the Messiah. They were not the chosen people, the only ones to be redeemed, but again, the people through which the Messiah would come to redeem everyone. This hope is for the whole world. Just a few verses later in Isaiah, we see uh, verse 6, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. This child is clearly referring to the same child prophesied in chapter 7. And this time he's referred to by four new names that are pretty incredible. The first one being Wonderful Counselor. The Hebrew word for this is Pele, which is actually a noun as opposed to an adjective, how we read it in modern English. A wonderful counselor, wonderful being an adjective that denotes a quality onto the object, counselor. But it's not saying in the original Hebrew that Jesus is a wonderful counselor. It's a noun. They're saying that Jesus is wonder. He was extraordinary. He's astounding. He's hard to understand. Which is true, because 2,000 years ago, when Jesus broke into our world... He was born of a virgin. That doesn't make any sense. He lived a sinless life. He never did anything wrong. He was both fully God and fully man simultaneously. And to top it all off, he sacrificed his life for a bunch of dirty liars and thieves who didn't deserve it. Nothing about Jesus makes sense. Everything about him was unique, distinctive, and amazing, and wonderful. I could see how he would be the wonderful counselor prophesied in the Old Testament. Next we read mighty God. The Hebrew is El Gibor, which means God is a mighty warrior. We hear that term, we, we kind of have a connotation of military strength or power. We're calling God a mighty warrior. So that makes sense. But this term, mighty God, is not simply referring to the, the raw power of the Messiah that is to come. Calling him mighty God it's calling him God himself. It's about his identity. He is God with us, as prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7. He's not just some mouthpiece to be a messenger for God. We'd seen that dozens of times before through the prophets. This time, he is the incarnation of God himself come to dwell among us. And next we read Everlasting Father. The Hebrew is aviad, and that means father of eternity. So you could see how that would get translated as everlasting father. And this name starts to touch on a, 
a somewhat difficult concept in Christian doctrine called the Trinity, wherein we believe that God is one being with three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we say that Jesus is God the Son. So then you could ask, if Jesus is God the Son, how could he also be the everlasting Father? Well, it's important to look at how Father is used in this term. Father of eternity, I want to examine. Father can, can be used to mean the author, the originator, the founder, the progenitor of this thing. So when we look at the father of eternity, what we're seeing here is Isaiah using the term father to imply that Jesus authored eternity itself, that he was the originator, the progenitor of eternity. And who could have possibly existed in eternity but God himself? And we see this again very concretely explained in John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Going further into verse 4, I'll, I'll share this with you again. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. This light came as the Messiah, the person of Jesus and he was worth the wait. But many of you may be thinking now, well, I've heard this message before. I've heard that Christians are supposed to be hopeful. So where's the hope? Why hasn't my life gotten any better? Why do I still have all these battles? Why am I still wrestling with money troubles, with relationship troubles? Why am I still wrestling with addiction? Why are all the people I'm praying for seeing no benefit from the prayers that I raise up? This light has got to be a load of bull. If any of you have struggles that you have been patiently hoping for relief from, I'm sorry. But the thing is, this hope that Jesus offers is not rooted in relief from the problems of this life, but in something much more important. It's a hope in salvation. It's a hope that one day all of these troubles will be gone. There will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more fear. And we can live in eternity with the God who loved us so much that he sent his only son to die in our place just so that we could see him. Paul says in Romans that the problems of this life are actually meant to bring us closer to this hope and salvation. This is one of my favorite scriptures. I'm pretty sure I shared it in my last sermon. I'm certain I'll share it in several more next year. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5 say... We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. No one in the Bible ever said that our lives would be easy or free from problems. The good news is that we don't have to count on a busted, broken, dark world to fill our needs. Because our troubles produce endurance, which produces character, which strengthens our hope in salvation, because our greatest need has already been met by Jesus. So this Christmas season, whether you're already filled with joy and hope, or whether you're just hoping to get by, 
I encourage you to reflect on what the gospel of Jesus could mean for you. And if you have any questions about that or need any prayer for anything that you're struggling with, please come talk to a leader after the service. We'll have some people up front to do that with you. Let's pray. Jesus, we lift you up and I praise you and acknowledge you today as my, my Savior and, and the Messiah that was prophesied so many thousands of years ago. God, and I thank you that you've, you did it. You came through on all these outlandish promises that seemed so impossible to meet, but God, you did it. Thank you for saving me and, and offering your salvation to everyone here on earth. And now I ask your blessing on anybody in the congregation who is hopeless right now. God, who feels like their world is turned upside down and they, they can't find where this hope is at that I've just talked about today, God. I ask that you would reveal the hope of your gospel to them, not rooted in anything of this world, but rooted in something so much more powerful, an unshakable kingdom that will never fail. And I ask, God, that if there's anybody with prayer needs or any questions about this, that you would give them the boldness to come up and, and ask for those things, God. I ask that in your name. Amen.